And the reality is, is that the civil rights movement was a movement that was really started from the bottom up, people in communities organizing and coming together. And women and girls are a critical part of that. Are you ready? You got this, girl. Love Girls, the podcast is all about storytelling and empowerment. Our mission is to share a space for women and girls to talk about the stuff that matters to them most. Love speaks to the support we give each other as we search for our own path to success. L, we can lead the way. O, overcome barriers. V, value each other. E, and empower each other. That's love. Because every girl has a story. And our stories matter. Hello, and welcome to Love Girls, the podcast. I'm your co-host, Kayla Babers. And I'm Mariah Martinez, your other co-host. Today, we are talking to Dr. Noelle Trent from the National Civil Rights Museum. Our mission at Love Girls Magazine is to provide girls a platform for leadership, an opportunity to share their voices and their stories. Welcome our host and training. Hi, guys. My name is Brianna, and I'm 14, and I go to Assumption High School. My name is Kyla Nephew. I'm 14 years old, and I'm homeschooled. Before we introduce our guest, I would like to give the host and training a chance to share their thoughts on African-American history in schools. What have you learned about Black history in school, and do you feel like it's enough? So with my experience, I've gone to two predominantly white schools, and I feel like the African-American education hasn't really been brought up enough or like how it needs to be because I feel like the only thing that they teach in schools is about the slavery part and like civil rights and I mean they should but I feel like there's more to that than just the slavery and all the bad stuff that happened so I think there needs to be more in like private schools and and in public schools as well I feel like when you don't teach kids about it they get ignorant um back when I was in public school we learned about it quite a lot actually especially as um I got into fifth grade we had assignments and uh, got to learn about different black um, civil rights leaders and movements and at now as I'm homeschooled um, every like Monday my parents put on like a documentary or something educational to learn and also my mom has had us read the book Malcolm X and plans to teach us furthermore about black history i have to agree when i was in school i don't think i learned any really good parts of black history i learned a lot about i agree with you brie um the slavery and so i think that it's very important that we continue to bring a more positive notion with black history month and i mean just my two cents i have beef slightly with the public school system because I mean, I know it's our history. I know it's black history, but we are Americans. So something always just rubbed me the wrong way, even as a little kid of it being black history and not encompassed into American history. Um, But, you know, that's me. They call me Angela Davis. So. Dr. 
Trent has a master's in public history and a PhD in United States history from Howard University. Dr. Trent is an accomplished public historian and has worked with several noted organizations and projects, including the National Park Service, the Frederick Douglass National Historic Site, and the Smithsonian Institution National Museum of African American History and Culture. That is a mouthful. Um, where she contributed to the exhibition Defending Freedom, Defining Freedom, the Era of Se Segregation, 1876 to 1968. Welcome, Dr. Trent. Yay. Thank you so much. It's great to be here today. We are so excited to have you. Can you give us some background on the museum? What are some exhibits people can expect to see when visiting the museum? So the National Civil Rights Museum is located at the historic Lorraine Motel in Memphis, Tennessee. Uh, in 1945, Walter and Lori Bailey purchased the motel, and they were an African-American business couple. The motel becomes this uh, oasis for black travelers who are traveling during uh, segregation. So when there are limited areas that black people could go, uh, and a lot of hotels, particularly especially in the South, not every place uh, was welcoming. So there was a book known as the Green Book, which mm -hmm. is which was a um, travel guide for um, black travelers. And so the Lorraine Motel was listed in the Green Book. And so it was one of these places people would come. So people like Aretha Franklin, Sam Cooke, Jackie Robinson, and many, many others stayed at the motel. Now, tragically, on April 4th, 1968, Dr. King is assassinated, and shortly thereafter, the hotel begins to go into a decline. Now, there's a lot of questions in the late 70s about what would happen to downtown Memphis, and some people had said they should tear down the motel and make it a parking lot. But the community came together to save the motel, and in 1991, it opened as the country's first museum specifically dedicated to telling the African-American civil rights story. So today, uh, we have 24 galleries in our uh, exhibition space. We did a massive renovation in 2014 for $27.5 million. And what you'll see when you view the, when you visit the museum is that you'll enter into what we call our culture of resistance. And this is where we examine the origins of African Americans that travel from the western coast of Africa to uh, the Americas, uh, the Middle Passage, and even those people who early resisted. Well, thank you for that rundown. I've actually been um, to the Lorraine Motel. Same. In Memphis. Um, girls, have you, have either one of you visited yet? Um, no, but I would love to go. And also in my English class, we're learning about Maya Angelou. And so I learned, I, I mean, I kind of already know a lot about Maya Angelou, but I think I just forgot that like Martin Luther King was assassinated on her birthday. And I also I learned that. that they like kind of work together and Dr. King wanted Maya to work with him. And before she like went to work with him he got assassinated. So just a couple facts that I know. That that brings us, that's a great segue. Look at you doing your homework. Hey. Um, uh, <laughs> Dr. Trent, um, just piggybacking off what Bree said, um, do you think women and the role they have played in the civil rights movement has been overlooked? Because um, I know we hear you about your Dr. Kings, your Malcolm X's, um, but what women are highlighted in the museum? 
So one of the things that I really appreciate about the design and interpretation, which is how we tell the story at the museum, is that women are integrated throughout. So you'll always see a woman show up. But I think that there's this thing that we call the master narrative, which is kind of the standard or the status quo of storytelling regarding the civil rights movement. And so when most of us think about the movement, we think about men. We think about leaders and that there's this hierarchy. So there's this organized order from the top down. And the reality is, is that the civil rights movement was a movement that was really started from the bottom up. People in communities organizing and coming together. And women and girls are a critical part of that. So we can look at someone like Ida B. Wells in the 19th century, who comes to Memphis, Tennessee, initially as a teacher, then becomes this journalist who writes some really, uh, you know, controversial exposés. And when two of her friends are lynched by a mom, she starts this pamphlet uh, called Southern Lynch Law and a Red Record and starts to push out and say, this, these things are happening. Black people are being killed. Black people are dying. This isn't a myth. I've got the documentation and here are the circumstances with which that happens. Now, when she does that, she's run out of town, but she's a critical part of that story. We don't have that sort of awareness. You can't really have a Black Lives Matter movement without looking at the work of Ida B. Wells. Um, we also have people like Septima Clark and Ella Baker, who worked with students and really critical for getting students and training students. Um, but then there's also been some issues, I have to be honest, about how um, some women have been presented. Let's take Rosa Parks. Like traditionally, the story around Rosa Parks has been, you know, she was a seamstress who was tired. The reality is, is that she is way more interesting than the standard storytelling, right? So she was raised around, uh, raised by her grandparents who were, uh, her grandfather took her to meetings for Marcus Garvey, who was a black radical in the 1920s. Um, and they were like, you know, she's quiet, she's an introvert, but she has a very militant tendency, right? And so in the 40s, she's active in the NAACP. She serves as a secretary for her local chapter. And she even goes around the state of Alabama to take testimonies of women who were sexually assaulted by groups of white men. And I want you to think about the type, the how hard it is for young women today to come forward about their sexual assault. Right. And we're living in a time period where nobody talks about sex in the open. That's a really, really big deal. Right. So there's all sorts of stories of women and girls who show up in the movement who do these sorts of things. And you will see them very prominently. We don't put them in a corner. You know, there's no woman section here at the museum. They're very much a part of the story. And I think it helps people expand their mind to know that women and girls are very, very important to the success of the movement. I agree. Thank you. It, it sounds like all those women you listed would have, would be a part of Love Girls magazine today. <laughs> oh, absolutely. <laughs> if they were here with us. There is currently a lot of debate about Black history and what is taught in schools. Does the museum work with schools in the Memphis area? Are there concerns in the Memphis community that students are not exposed to enough information about Black history? Well, here's what I will say. The museum works with our local school district and has a great relationship with uh, the Memphis Shelby County Schools and our local municipalities, as well as private schools 
and charter schools, but we also work with schools nationally. Now, you know, you just have to watch the news to know that uh, the teaching of history uh, is considered now controversial, what stories are told. And there has been movement in the last 20 years to teach an inclusive history, right? That American history is the story of all people. So it's Black history, it's Latinx history, it's Asian American history, uh, it's LGBTQ+. All of these people have lived, worked, and done amazing things in American society, and we should all know their stories. Our approach is that we will we tell the truth. We use primary sources, and those are sources that have been written by people who witness history. They can be films. They can be photographs. Um, they can even be artifacts, so objects from the time period. So we use those to tell the story, right? We use those to show people that this is what happened, and we're always going to continue to do that. Um, I don't know what the future holds for that, but we always will rest in that basic historic methodology, right? Um, but I would be lying if I didn't say that my colleagues across the country, including the National Civil Rights Museum, are very concerned about the debates and what that can mean to the work that we do moving forward. I guess my thought is always, why, why don't people want us to know our history as an American history? And what what fuels concern um, or what have you that makes you know, certain people want to bury our history, I guess, because um, they say if you don't know your history, you're doomed to repeat it, something like that. Um, so I'm just curious, what are your what are your thoughts on maybe, of course, you can't speak for others, but I'm sure you have these conversations all the time. What is that fear in us having that knowledge at our hands, especially, especially young black girls and boys to know where they come from and who who's done the work before them? Well, here's what I will say. Um, Lonnie Bunch, who is now secretary of the Smithsonian, when he was head of the National Museum of African American History and Culture, uh, famously said that black history is American history, right? It's not separate. It's always inclusive. In fact, when we look at the origins of Black History Month, it was started by Dr. Carter G. Woodson. And Dr. Woodson actually uh, said that when he was doing this, this was just a moment to amplify, to raise awareness around Black history. It wasn't supposed to replace the integration of Black history into the overall American story. And I can tell you a little bit more about how it, it evolved to what it is today. Uh, so what we're seeing is, you know, people are realizing that there's some sort of inclusion. And for some folks, they feel that inclusion comes at their expense, right? That they are, there's a concern that somehow they're going to be portrayed as the bad guy, right? Or they're, they're gonna, they're, it's a challenge to the status quo. And historically, anytime anybody challenges the status quo, there's always resistance. And here's the thing about history that I really enjoy is that it's not just about the trauma, right? So we have an tendency to even talk about slavery and the civil rights movement and just think it's about the fire hoses and the dogs and the death threats and, and the assassinations. And that is absolutely part of the story. But there's also some joy in the communities that existed, in the way that people created things in the midst of having seemingly nothing, right? There's joy in how people found ways to resist 
even in the most difficult circumstances. I am a grown person, and I still don't know how Fannie Lou Hamer could sing in the midst of being jailed and beaten, right? But there's mm -hmm. a joy there, and we should be celebrating that. Each year, you have a celebration to honor Dr. Martin Luther King, and you honor youth in your community. The Keeper of the Dream Award is for youth committed to helping others. Regan Crenshaw is former cover girl for the Love Girls magazine and a former Keeper of the Dream honoree. When and why was this award established? How do you identify the honorees? So the Keeper of the Dream Award has been in existence, I believe, over 15 years here at the museum. And it exists in conjunction with our Freedom Award. The museum has been giving out the Freedom Award since 1991 to honor people for extraordinary service in the arenas of civil and human rights. So we've honored Gloria Steinem, John Legend, uh, now President Biden, but when he was former President Vice, Vice President uh, Biden, we've honored President Clinton, Bono, Stevie Wonder, and so many other people who've made these amazing contributions. There was this idea prior to my being with the museum that there were also students locally who were doing amazing work, and how great would it be if we could shine a light on that? Uh, and so it's actually an application process. People can self-nominate or they can be nominated by teachers or community members. And then there's a community review of the applications and someone is selected. I'm always impressed with the honorees. These are kids who are setting up and doing amazing work. So there's this opportunity that it influences people uh, young people as they move along their way in their careers. And so we've had some wonderful people be a part of that. And um, Reagan is just an amazing young woman. Yes, she, she's a superstar for sure. When people think of Dr. Martin Luther King, they're likely to think about marches and his iconic I Have a Dream speech. Um, you're the expert. What are some lesser known facts that you can share with us about Dr. King? Oh, um, I don't know if we have enough time for all of that. But <laughs> <laughs> I, I can give you just a couple of things. You know, one of the things that I think is really important that I when I especially when I pre uh, present to high school students is to remind them that the March on Washington happened in 1963. Dr. King dies in 1968. There's a whole five years of stuff that this man is doing. So when we stop looking at him mid-career, we lose a lot of uh, his evolution. Mm -hmm. um, the other really important thing for people to remember is that the I Have a Dream speech that, you know, the ideal of Black children and white children coming together, that is a long-term goal. That is a what we would call a utopian ideal. That is something that is way out there. That was not something that um, was supposed to happen tomorrow, right? Um, if you look at the first half of the speech, he's talking about economic inequity. The March on Washington was a march about jobs and freedom. So it was very much dealing with the fact that people can't get jobs, that they're not being paid equitably. Uh, when Another thing people don't know, and this is what brought him to Memphis, was his poor people's campaign. He had this idea in 1967 
that, you know, poverty is a big issue. And there was this, there's this mentality in America back then and even today that if you're poor, it's a result of a moral failing. You just didn't do mm-hmm. enough. Right. And Dr. King said, absolutely not. It's not a moral failing. Being poor in America, one of the wealthiest countries in the world, is a byproduct of system structures and policies. Mm -hmm. So what we need to do is get those policies changed. So his vision was to get poor people from all over the country to descend on Washington, D.C. and set up a tent city on the National Mall. That way, Congress people and senators and other folks who work for the federal government had to see them every single day when they went to work. And that the, that these this population would then go meet with their politicians and really stay until something could happen, right? And so during early 1968, he's bringing awareness to that. And because of a sanitation strike, sanitation worker strike here in Memphis, that's what bring, brings him to Memphis. Right. But people are uncomfortable with Dr. King. But that's the Dr. King that's really phenomenal. Right. That he's seen that this is where the inequities are, that we have to deal with this. And I think that that's one of the reasons why he was the most hated man in America. One of his famous quotes from around that time period is that and he says a country that spends more on its military defense than on the well-being of its people is approaching spiritual doom. Right. So he was looking at how money was being spent and said, there's a problem here. America has enough to take care of everybody. Why can't we do that? Well, for my public school education, it's almost washed over. We we get this really squeaky clean kind of representation of Dr. King. You know, he's kind of the symbolism of the movement when it was much deeper than us, you know, just holding hands with our white counterparts. But I appreciate your insight. So I know I watched the Super Bowl. Cheryl Lee Ralph, she sang. I wanted to throw a shoe at her. She was doing her thing. Um, Right. It was so good. (laughs) She, like, I was... I was um, at a local restaurant and I just stopped what everybody stopped what they were doing and just listened to her belt it out. Um, but I'm curious, mm-hmm. what are your thoughts um, on, I don't know if you're social media heavy, um, but there's been a lot of controversy regarding the national, the black national anthem or lift every voice and sing being sang um, to start off all the Super Bowl festivities. You know, first of all, you're absolutely right. Shirley Ralph is, an absolute goddess. You guys need yes. to YouTube her dream girl. She was an OG dream girl. So YouTube that. You'll just learn some amazing things about her. Um, but here's the reason why, and I think this has gotten lost. Number one, it was the 100th anniversary of the first time that that song was, was sung publicly. Number two, there's a high population of black athletes in the NFL. That part. So it makes sense, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, this was never about attacking someone. This this song was written at a time when black people were literally being murdered in the streets, right? This was being written at a time when uh, songs, particular anthems and hymns were being composed for all different types of groups. That's, that's a way that you cemented your collective and communal identity. And it became the thing to bring black people together, right? Um, I think it's it's incredibly disappointing uh, what people interpreted from that, but they also, a whole lot of them, probably never heard it before or don't know the words. 
I think social media is a great space. I thought, you know, there there's some pluses and minus to it, <laughs> minuses to it. But I think people miss the importance of that moment. This wasn't just any old year to do it. This was the hundredth anniversary. And why not amplify it, particularly in a world and in the aftermath of the death of Tyree Nichols, right? We're three years after the death of George Floyd. Mm -hmm. Tyree Nichols happened here in Memphis, Tennessee. This song can be a bomb and a reflection and show people that there's joy in the black community, right? Why do we always have to talk about the trauma? Are you okay with what happened or us amplifying the conversation about Tyree Nichols, but we can't communally and as a country celebrate something beautiful and a song that commemorates the years of struggle that a community has put together. You're, you're exactly right. And I was having a conversation with my mom and she said, are people even listening to the lyrics? But it's like, if you listen to the words, it, it's about a collective. It's about us coming together. So I know that you help out with the museum. So being surrounded by Black history, American history, and the work of generations before us, do you ever get like burnt out? Although we are making progress, some people feel like it's not enough. So what are your thoughts about that? The reality is, is that the nature of my work as Director of Interpretation, Collections, and Education is that I'm always thinking about past and present. I'm always working, thinking through how do we connect stuff to the community, right? How do we help people process a tragic event? And so absolutely, there are times where you just cannot take anymore, right? Um, there are times where, you know, the death of Tyree Nichols, I did not watch the video, not really, because it, it, it just, it, it, it hurts too much. It hurt me personally to see that. And so one of the things that's really important as a historian and as a black woman for me is to really embody what Audre Lorde and so many other black feminist scholars have said, which is rest is rebellion, right? And so I have, and you guys are getting this early, so hopefully you'll do a better job than I did at your age, but you know, there's an importance to doing the work, but there's also importance to taking time to recover and to reset yourself so you can keep doing this work. When I was younger, my mom used to tell me that I am my ancestor's wildest dream. And so I like to think that maybe we can have a fun twist on it and to be more positive. Generationally, just keep um, achieving more and more as we go. I would say you are the product of your ancestors prayers and hard work. Ooh, I love Their dreams, I don't know if they could have imagined the world that we live in today. Say that. Say that. Thank you for joining us today, Dr. Trent. Um, if people wanted to find out more information about the museum or you, how can they get in contact? So they can visit the National Civil Rights Museum's website at civilrightsmuseum.org, or you could follow us on social media which is at NCR Museum, and that's on Twitter, uh, Instagram, and Facebook. But I know y'all probably don't mess with Facebook. <laughs> so yeah, Twitter and Instagram. Um, and then I am on Twitter at Noelle Trent, PhD. All right. Well, thank you for joining us today. Thank well, thank you so much, ladies. It was great get getting to know you.
Thank you so much for listening to Love Girls, the podcast. Join us on our next podcast when we talk to Essence from season 17, So You Think You Can Dance. Because every girl has a story and yours deserves to be heard.